To be entirely transparent with you, uh, I wasn't, it, it wasn't my plan, <laughs> uh, that's how the Spirit works, uh, it wasn't my plan to uh, bring you this message from Numbers 11. I had planned originally to uh, bring you a message from Isaiah 44, uh, sort of on the idea of the fragility of our gods that we manufacture. There's a great passage in Isaiah 44 where the prophet takes some time and really goes into detail and he gives a story about a guy crafting an idol. It's really fascinating. And there's a great theme in that sermon and I'm saving that for another day. <laughs> uh, but I, wanna, I was reading this particular passage, Numbers 11, and I was just struck by the resonance of this passage. Uh, so much so that I had just had to write it all down and I'm delivering it to you now. It was just a message that just immediately popped out to me as I was reading it. It just burned in me for uh, several days obviously. And it, I just couldn't escape what is here. Uh, I think there is a lot that is relevant to us now. Uh, with what these people of Israel confess, with what they end up doing here in this passage and how God reacts to them. Uh, This chapter is fascinating for a number of reasons. Uh, Verse 33 of the chapter before, chapter 10, tells us it's only been about three days since all of the events, the long months that have been spent at Mount Sinai, you know, with the golden calf and the Ten Commandments and all the covenantal stuff that God declares at Mount Sinai. All that's been happening and here it's in verse 33 of chapter 10 and they departed from the mount mount sinai of the lord three days journey it's been three days since all that they're they're on their way into the wilderness now and all that sort of stuff that goes on and they're still in the foothills we could say of mount sinai and what do the people of israel start doing they start Grumbling, They start complaining. Verse 1, and the people complained. Verse 4, and the mixed multitude that was among them fell a-lusting. <laughs> Just goes to show you that not much has changed really in the human heart for thousands of years. <laughs> because we still are much, very much like the people of Israel. We love to complain. Maybe you won't admit that you like to complain, but I guarantee you that you do. Uh, I like to complain too. It's just so much easier and so much more, at least in the moment, funner for you to complain about things that are happening to you. Even if it's not fun for those that are around you. (laughs) You're kind of dragging everything down. You're making everything a little bit worse for everyone around you. It's sort of our default setting. To take everything that is happening as though we are the centers of that moment. You know, that's really what complaining is. You're inserting yourself into the center of what's happening. And if it's happening that you're not liking it, then obviously it's something that's bad that you need to grumble about. (laughs) And here the people of Israel are putting themselves in the centers of their moments. And they are making sure everyone knows that they don't like what's happening. They are prone, just like these Israelites here, to let circumstances not just determine their outlook... As it does. But actually they let the circumstances determine their faith. And inform their faith. So much so that they begin doubting what God has already done. This is all of what is happening here in Numbers 11. In a series of events that I would say are not just a reminder. They're a warning. About where our only true source of faith is. 
And why we are so given over to complaining, we will see, I think, and I hope, and through a series of three lessons that I want to bring out to you this morning from this chapter. These, I would say, are sort of obstructions to faith. And how God speaks, not only into each of them, but sort of eradicates each of these obstructions oftentimes that arise, that allow us and make us sort of doubt, make us lose our faith even, even as these Israelites do here. So, number one, the first lesson this morning is a lesson about memory. A lesson about memory. Because what is so fascinating is in these verses is how the Israelites give themselves over to a faulty memory of Egypt. Notice again verse 4. It says, In the mixed multitude that was among them fell a lusting, and the children of Israel also wept again, and said, Who shall give us flesh to eat? We remember the fish which we did eat in Egypt freely, the cucumbers and the melons and the leeks and the onions and the garlic. But now our soul is dried away. There is nothing at all beside this manna before our eyes. (laughs) They are barely out of the shadow of Mount Sinai here. And they're already griping about the food that they have in front of them. They're griping about their situation. Might I add needlessly. God wasn't off not meeting their needs. He was tending to every single one of their needs. It just wasn't how they wanted it to be tended to. He was gloriously and miraculously demonstrating his protection over them. He has already done that at the Red Sea. That great miracle where he parts the waters and brings them over on dry ground. And here, even further, he's meeting every single one of their needs with this amazing provision of manna every single morning. That detail there in verses 7 through 9 tell us just how it came about, kind of what they did with it, and how it was meeting their needs. They were being sustained miraculously by God with manna from heaven given to them freely and in abundance. Yet even still they complained. Verse 6 is so fascinating to me. You notice what they say? Now our soul is dried away. This reminds me... And I won't say, I'm not going to lie and say, I've never said this, but it reminds me of when my kids say this, when they're like, I'm starving. And you know they're not starving. (laughs) But they try and convince you that they are starving because they want some such snack or whatever. And it's almost, you can hear that in the Israelites' voice. They're starving. They're not really starving. Their soul wasn't drying away. In fact, in a really amazing historical psalm, Psalm 78, it actually tells us, it goes through these very events, and it tells us, I think it's in verse 18 or 22, it says there that actually they are eating to the full. They're not not drying away. They're not wasting away. They're not not starving. They're eating to the full. It's just that they are not eating what they want to eat. What's with all this manna? I'm so sick of eating this stuff every single day. That's really what they're saying. I'm I'm not thankful for what you are giving me. And in a way, I can sympathize with them. I can sympathize with the Israelites eating the same thing every morning. I think I would groan too. (laughs) Which again, just shows that we don't change very much. (laughs) They're, They're human just like us. But the real tenor and the real significance of this complaint is that it's not just about food. It's not just a a, a dietary complaint. Actually, it's much more significant than that. Because again, notice verse 4. There's this 
mixed multitude that is among them. These are those who were not Israelites, but they had joined sort of the Israelite band as they made their exodus out of Egypt. They're mentioned. The only other time this word mixed multitude is used is in that same reference, Exodus 12, verse 38. And they begin reminiscing about the, quote, good old days back in Egypt. And begin weeping for that Egyptian menu. Oh, if we could just have some fish. <laughs> Remember all the fish, they say, which we did eat in Egypt freely? The cucumbers and the melons and the leeks and the onions and the garlic. Talk about a menu. They begin salivating over all those, quote, good times that they had back in Egypt. All the delicious meals they had. It's not like this boring old manna. You got to grind up and you got to bake and you got to eat every single morning. Remember that awesome food we had in Egypt? Man, I miss that. Oh, yeah, not to mention the slave labor and the rape and the genocide of their people. <laughs> not to mention all of the stuff that God had brought them out of. Israel here allows this mixed multitude that was among them, this riffraff, as it's elsewhere sort of translated, this mixed people determine and inform their faith. Remember all that stuff? And Israel begins weeping for it too. Oh, that we were back in Egypt. We could eat some really delicious meals. There's a sense in which here, Israel is weeping to have the exodus reversed. Can you imagine that? After all those years of slavery, after all of those years of being forced into uh, manual labor, and not just manual labor, but to have your people uh, sort of tried and, and executed all around you for hundreds of years. And now here you're saying that you wish you could go back because you just want to have some fish. You just miss that menu. It must have been some meals that they had in Egypt. This memory here that they have here. So faulty. (laughs) And I think this is one of the things that's going on. One of the things that's happening here. This obstruction to their faith. This lesson about memory. It presumes that there were days that were better beforehand. Which is to say that somehow God has changed in how he's dealing with us. God, you're different now. Before, you were, you were dealing with us pretty well. And now look at where we are. We just have this boring old manna. They're saying that God has changed. I miss those good old days. It's a false memory. It's a lie. God hasn't changed. God does not change. God cannot change. He does not change in the way that he deals with his children. Yes, to us. We perceive all the changes that happen in our lives. But God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is constant. He is sure. He is certain. He doesn't waver in his goodness. We waver in the way we perceive his goodness. We waver in the way that we see how he is interacting and how he is leading everything to, uh, for our good and his glory. That's what changes And here Israel, Israel is making this sort of upward attack against God saying, you've changed, you've changed in the way you've dealt with us. And our memory says and informs us that you were better before. (laughs) Forgetting what they were brought out of. Forgetting what God had led them away from. See, this isn't just about food. (laughs) 
They're complaining and affronting and almost assaulting God's care of them. No wonder God was kindled, had his anger enraged. The people of Israel here have such a a misplaced faith and a memory that didn't exist. A memory of the better days in Egypt. Sometimes too, I think our faith is, is obstructed by a faulty memory that says God has changed in the way he's dealing with me. That now it's worse than it was before. That now something is different. God, you've changed. God doesn't change. We change. We let those around us perhaps inform us uh, of ways in which we might be made to believe this lie. Just like Israel was. That there were better days before. But notice a lesson about memory. But notice number two. A lesson about murmuring. Because Moses hears all this. Moses hears this crying, this weeping that's coming from the mouths of the people of Israel. As they're complaining about this manna. About this food that they have. That they they don't really want to eat. He hears all this weeping. And notice what Moses does. Because he begins blame shifting. Which is interesting. Notice verse 10. Then Moses heard the people weep throughout their families. Every man in the door of his tent. And the anger of the Lord was kindled greatly. Moses also was displeased. And Moses said unto the Lord. Wherefore hast thou afflicted thy servant? And wherefore have I not found favor in thy sight? That thou layest the burden of all this people on me. You notice. (laughs) Israel is throwing a pity party. They're really they're they're in their tents just whining and complaining and crying over all this manna that they have to eat that they've been given freely. And Moses is sort of like the parent that's had enough. I just can't deal with this. So what does he do? He ends up griping to God in his own, in his own way. That's really what this prayer is. If we read verses eleven through fifteen, Moses is really just complaining. And the big summary of this complaint of Moses to God is, "Why me?" Notice verse 11 again. Wherefore hast thou afflicted thy servant? And wherefore have I not found favor in thy sight? That thou layest the burden of all this people upon me? Have I conceived all this people? Have I begotten them? That thou shouldest say unto me, carry them in thy bosom as a nursing father beareth a sucking child unto the land which thou swearest unto their fathers? Whence should I have flesh to give unto all this people? For they weep unto me, saying, Give us flesh that we may eat. I am not able to bear it. Bear all this people alone, because it is too heavy for me. And if thou deal thus with me, kill me, I pray thee, out of thy hand. If I have found favor in thy sight, and let me not see my wretchedness. (laughs) You want to talk about a low point? Moses was so perturbed and frustrated by Israel's griping that he says, God, just kill me where I stand. I can't put up with these people. Can't put up with their complaints. I won't ask you if you said the same thing about your children. (laughs) But notice every stage of Moses' prayer, he's criticizing God's care. He's murmuring, he's, he's criticizing God's care of not just the people of Israel, because in fact the people of Israel are almost an afterthought in this prayer. He's criticizing God's care of him. It's a very self-oriented complaint. God, why have you done this to me? Why have you put me here? Why, why would you bring me to this point? 
Why would you allow me to go and suffer through all this? It's very self-oriented. Very self-centered. And he even compares God to a, a, a mother or a parent in verse 12. Um, and, and essentially what he's doing is he, he's trying to evade, he's trying to shirk responsibility for the Israelites' words and actions. This is on you. God, these are your people. These are, these are your, they're your problem. They're, I, didn't, I didn't conceive these people. I didn't bring them out. This is, this is your plan from the beginning. I didn't even want to be here. <laughs> Remember Exodus 3 and 4? How many times Moses pushes off the responsibility to not carry through with the plan to let the people go out of Egypt? <laughs> he makes excuse after excuse after excuse. And each time God is saying, I'm going to be with you. I'm going to be with you. Don't worry. I'll be your strength. Don't worry. I'll be your words. Don't worry. I'll be your wisdom. I'm going to be with you. Don't worry. <laughs> you can see almost Moses like, see, God, I told you this is, was a, a, a silly idea. I didn't even want to be in this place. And now look at where we are. We're in a wasteland. All we have is manna. Everyone's complaining. God, these are your people. You fix this problem. It's, it's a very self-oriented prayer. And it, what, what struck me is so fascinating is that it, this sounds an awful lot like Adam in the Garden of Eden. Remember when they are found out in Genesis 3? No, remember what, what was his first words? It's, it's this woman you gave me, God. It's, it's not my problem. It's... Her, she's a problem. And essentially Moses is doing the same thing. It's not me. They're the problem. They're the ones. It's this woman you gave me. It's this people that you gave me, God. He's doing, he's doing his best imitation of a lawyer who tries to present himself, represent his, sort of his case in the best possible light. God, I've done all of this. I've done all of this, this for these people. And, and what do you expect me to do here? And in so doing, he's accusing God of failing in his responsibility to care for him. And not just him, for Israel itself. He's suggesting that God's been negligent. That God's been inattentive. That God has somehow, again, God has somehow changed This faulty memory has come and informed. Now he is murmuring vocally to God. And he's saying, God, you have a problem. You've changed in how you've been dealing with us. Once again, it came about because this lie was proclaimed and believed about God's character. That there were better days before. You better fix this, God. You better get your act together and fix these people that you conceived. No wonder, verse 10 again, that God's anger was kindled so greatly. (laughs) This is an affront to how he deals with us. God, you've changed in some way. You need to get your act together. These are serious charges being made against God. This isn't just a flippant prayer. It's not just a, a flippant sort of nonchalant complaint of Moses to God. This is a serious accusation that God has somehow changed. In fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul, well, let me just read it for you. Because he references this event himself. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, he includes murmuring in a list of of, of sins that you wouldn't expect to to find this in. So notice uh, 1 Corinthians 10, well, you don't have to turn there, uh, just write it down. 
First uh, Corinthians 10, I'll just read verse 1. Moreover, brethren, I would not that ye should be ignorant how that all our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea, the Red Sea. And were all baptized unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea and did all eat the same spiritual meat and did drink all the same spiritual drink. For they drank of the spiritual rock that followed them and that rock was Christ. But with many of them, God was not well pleased for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things for were our, were our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. Neither be ye idolaters. As were some of them, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Neither let us commit fornication, as some of them committed and fell in one day three and twenty thousand. Neither let us tempt Christ, as some of them also tempted and were destroyed of serpents. Neither murmur ye, as some of them also murmured and were destroyed of the destroyer. And a list. And includes lust and idolatry and fornication and all sorts of rampant sins that evidence that we don't have Christ. He says, don't murmur as some of them did for your example to show you the seriousness that God is takes complaining. You're throwing your face and your fist up in God and you're complaining about his care, about his promises and about how he has not really met and, and fulfilled his end of the bargain. That's really what Moses is doing here. He's sort of sarcastically throwing all those promises God had made back in his face. God, you you promised all of these things. These are your people that you swore that you were going to bring us into the land of their fathers. And look at here we are now. Just kill me now. (laughs) You see, Moses... He's not just murmuring about, the, about all the noise that's coming from the Israelites' tents. He's actually calling into question God's faithfulness. He's calling into question and saying, God, you, you've changed in the way that you've been faithful to us. In such a way that, that God, I don't see how we can do it. I don't see how we can make it. And this is what leads me to the last Lesson here, a lesson about memory, a lesson about murmuring. But notice, lastly, a lesson about mathematics. <laughs> Which is an interesting way to propose it. But what Moses calls into question here is so fascinating. The, the sort of source of his complaint. So he's complaining about all this. He's, he's griping about the Israelites griping about their griping about manna. <laughs> and he's griping to God about that. And notice, notice the Lord's answer to him. He responds. So Moses has complained about not having help. So God answers that. And the Lord said unto Moses. Gather unto me seventy men of the elders of Israel. Whom thou knowest to be the elders of the people. And the officers over them. And bring them unto the tabernacle of the congregation. That they may stand there with thee. And I will come down and talk with thee there. And I will take of the spirit which is upon thee. And will put it upon them. And they shall bear the burden of the people with thee, that thou bear it not thyself alone. And say thou unto the people, sanctify yourselves against tomorrow. And ye shall eat flesh, for ye have wept in the ears of the Lord, saying, Who shall give us flesh to eat? For it was, was, well, for it was well with us in Egypt. Therefore the Lord will give you flesh, and ye shall eat. He gives them what they want. Notice verse 19. Ye shall not eat one day, nor two days, nor five days, neither ten days, nor twenty days, but even a whole month until it come out at your nostrils. 
And it be loathsome unto you, because ye have despised the Lord which is among you, and have wept before him, saying, Why came we forth out of Egypt? You can kind of get the sense of God's response here. It's almost like, okay, you want help? I'll give you help. Okay, you want some meat? I'll give you some meat. If that's the way you want it, that's the way you're going to get it. That's essentially what God is saying here. There's sort of a, a, a slight air of a little bit frustration, and, and rightly so. They're calling into question his goodness, his care, his faithfulness. And he assures the, uh, Moses that the Israelites are going to get the meat they so want. And notice Moses' response. Verse 21, and Moses said, The people among whom I am are 600,000 footmen. And thou hast said, I will give them flesh, that they may eat a whole month. Shall the flocks and the herds be slain for them to suffice them? Or shall all the fish of the sea be gathered together for them to suffice them? Who's going to do this? How is this possible? He's, it's just so fascinating me how doubtful Moses is of this God. This God who has brought them out of Egypt. Brought them over the Red Sea. Who he has seen the glory of. He's seen the glory of God's face. Which is why his face, as it says in Exodus, was shining. He's seen all of that. And here, in this moment, he actually has the audacity to question God by using some math. I have at least 600,000 men, not counting the women, not counting the children. How in the world am I going to feed all of them flesh? How am I going to feed them any sort of meat? Do you expect me to go to the ocean and catch all the fish of the sea? Do you you expect me to gather all the herds of all the plains and put them on the roast for all these people? God, it's just too much. The math doesn't add up. You see again. Moses is is doubting God's faithfulness and God's ability. God, it's too much. How do you expect me to do this? The fact is, God hadn't expected him to do anything. If you go back to verse 18, the only thing he says to him to do is just go out and say this. He doesn't say, go out and hunt, go out and fish, go out and collect all these things. No, he says, go out and proclaim this. But Moses heard those words and just heard more tasks that needed to be accomplished by him. But God's message to him, I'm going to do this. I'm going to be the one to bring all this about. Which, by the way, is his promise still to us, too. His promise to us is that I am going to do this. Because you see, just like Moses, as long as we see ourselves as the sufficient ones in and of ourselves, the math will always never add up. It will always be overbearing. It will always be too overwhelming because we see ourselves as the only ones. God, I can't do it. I can't make it. I can't see the way through it. The math will never add up. And that's precisely the point. Because God wanted Moses and all of Israel and us, yes, even here this morning to see that he and he alone was their sufficiency. No matter what the circumstances, the conditions, no matter what and how and might seem, he is their sufficiency. And he is their abundant source of supply. 
This is why he responds in the way he does. Notice verse 23. And the Lord said unto Moses, Is the Lord's hand wax short? Am I weak? Have I, have I changed in my strength? Is, is this too hard for me? Do you really think that I've lost an ounce of my power? Thou shalt see now, he says, whether my word shall come to pass unto thee or not. Just watch what I'm going to do. Just, just watch. Just go out and trust me. Just say the things that I told you to say and just watch. Because after all of that they had seen, they forgot his wondrous works. That's what it says. Let me just read that verse. It's Psalm 78. Write this down. Psalm 78 verses 18 through 32. I'm not going to read them. But this is recounting that very moment in history for the people of Israel later. The psalmist Asaph is reminiscing about those days. And verse 32 says, For all this they sinned and believed not for his wondrous works. They forgot. That memory that told them the lie that they had it better days before. It grew into complaining and it grew to them seeing the moment and seeing the math as too much. It doesn't add up. And so what does God do? Well again, verses 19 and 20 again. He gives them exactly what they want. (laughs) They were going to get meat for a whole month. Not just one day, not just two days, not 20 days, for an entire month. And basically God's, quote, blessing to them is actually becomes a curse. You're going you're gonna to wish that you never asked for meat. You're going to have so much meat, it's going to be coming out of your nose. That's how much you're going to be eating this meat. <laughs> He's, he's being very exaggerated and towards of saying, I'm going to give you exactly what you want. And this is what happens. Notice verse 31. And there went forth a wind from the Lord and brought quails from the sea and let them fall by the camp as it were a day's journey on this side and as it were a day's journey on the other side. Round about the camp and as it were two cubits high upon the face of the earth. Six foot or not six foot, three foot high piles of dead quails. That's the picture. And the people stood up all that day and all that night and all the next day and they gathered the quails. He gathered, he that gathered least, he gathered 10 homers or 60 bushels. And they spread them all abroad for themselves round about the camp. And while the flesh was yet between their teeth, air was chewed, the wrath of the Lord was kindled against the people and the Lord smote the people with a very great plague. God's blessing becomes their judgment. See, sometimes God's most severest judgment is giving us exactly what we say we want. God, I really, God, come through for me in this. I really need this. He delays and he delays. He, He doesn't give us what we want. And then sometimes he does to show us exactly that our plans are not as good as his. That our ways are not as good as his. That our ability to think that we are sufficient is not as great and as magnificent and perfect as his ability to be sufficient for us. In fact, that's what happens. Verse 34. After this great plague and he called the name of that place Kibroth Hata'avah. Because there they buried the people that lusted. Basically, you know what that means? It's a Hebrew name for graves of lust or place of craving. This place became a memorial. 
A memorial to the people's complaints. A place where they could always go and see that they were reminded of how they griped and groaned at God's care. And they griped and groaned at God's faithfulness. As if he had somehow changed. And this is the pattern that develops from this story. That griping for and complaining about the better days of the past results in murmuring about the present. Which results in a growing distrust of God's power. There's no way you can come through for this. Because you've changed. You've lost something. God, you're different now. And I, I, I don't know how you can do it. I don't know how you're going to come through. You can see how their faith is being obstructed. It's being obstructed by all these different things. The math, the memory, the murmuring. It doesn't add up. And faith is there often defeated by this insidious lie that God cannot come through. That God will not come through. And that lie is believed all the more as we give ourselves over to thinking that very thing. That God has changed. That he's not as good now as he was before. That something is different. It was better back then. God's point is to show that no. He is the God of Israel. He's the God of Jacob. He's the God of Isaac. That's what Jesus says in the Gospels. He's the God of it all. He's the God who doesn't change. This is why we have the good news. This is the Gospel. It announces that, there, that we can be absolutely certain of putting our faith in God. Because he doesn't change. He doesn't waver. He's not a vindictive, angry, vengeful God who only wants our, our badness. He only wants to punish us. He is a God who seeks our good. Always and ever. Every single step of the way. And sometimes that good comes through judgment. And sometimes that good comes about through very difficult circumstances. But he is a God who never changes. He never wavers. He is never somehow different in the way he interacts with us or with his disposition towards us. He does not change. He cannot change. His mercy is a well that never runs dry, even for Israel, even for you and me now. His patience is an infinite storehouse of patience. It cannot run dry. He cannot run low on resources of patience for you and me, no matter how stubborn or thick-headed you might think you are, or perhaps you don't know that you are. He's a God of infinite patience and mercy for his people. And he ever longs to bring them into his good. Despite our worst complaints, God still never complains about us. Despite all the the times that we we vocalize our frustration with our, uh, our accusations that he's changed, he still sends his son for complainers and sinners like you and me. He still sent his son to die for people who complain at how he is dealing with them. Because he's a God who does not change. He seeks out your good for his purposes, for his glory. You see, not, no, no matter what the present obstacles are here right now, here in this present moment, we can have a faith that is certain because God doesn't change and because every single impossibility has already been accomplished on your behalf. Mark ten twenty seven. 
With man, this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with this God. He is the God of the impossible. With man, just like Moses, it'll never make sense. The odds will never add up. The math will never come to an easily solvable equation. But with God, all of it has already been solved. It is finished. It's already easily manageable. Put your faith in the one who says it is finished. Don't let memory uh, sort of convince you that God has changed. Lead you into complaining about how he's dealing with you. Lead you into believing that somehow the math can't add up and he can't come through. And that more than that, he won't come through now. Because he's a God who always comes through for his children. Maybe not in ways that you want, but in ways that he wants. And ways that bring about his purposes for your life and your present right here, right now. What are some ways that you've griped at God's goodness? That he's been caring for you freely and infinitely and you've been complaining at it. And your faith has become obstructed. It's become stifled by this lie that he's not your all-sufficient supply. Let me tell you this morning that God and God alone is your source of sufficient source of sufficient faith. Any other ground is going to be quickly sinking sand. You're going to find it to be fragile and fickle and frail. But with God, your faith is certain. He is the certainty that we need. And essentially, this passage is jumping out and reaching out to me and saying, look at me. And have your faith be made certain. Have your faith be made sure and solid. Yes, when all else is is crumbling and cracking. When all else doesn't appear to be as good as you wish it could be. As you thought it was going to be. Keep your eyes on Jesus. The author and finisher of your faith. Let us bow our heads and close our eyes.